Welcome to the podcast channel of the East Bay Unity Intergroup of Overeaters Anonymous. The opinions expressed here are those of individual members and do not represent OA as a whole. For more information about our intergroup, please visit our website at eastbayoa.org. Thank you. Hi, I'm David. I'm a compulsive overeater. So grateful to be here. Thank you, Elaine, for tracking me down um, and bringing me across the state. I'm here in Los Angeles. And uh, just to qualify, next week, God willing, on November 20th, I'll have 10 years of abstinence. I've been in OA for 12 years, and my abstinence is no binging, no purging, no flour, and no sugar. And um, when I came into OA, I was binging 10,000 calorie binging, binges in a sitting. Um, I was living in Manhattan. I was failing out of college. I hadn't spoken to my dad in 15 years. I'd never been in a relationship. And um, I was going from every Whole Foods in Manhattan, just binging, 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 binging. And then calorie counting on my phone, how many thousands of calories I binged that day. And then I'd go down to my gym and I wouldn't leave the gym until how many thousands of calories I worked out matched the calories of the binge. And um, that was my life. I was also taking 15 pills of hydroxycut almost every day for about eight years straight and um, had been rushed to the hospital twice, two suicide attempts. And by the time I was hitting my bottom, I was taking half a bottle of NyQuil at night just to sleep. Like I was so all over the place. And, um, you know, what it was like for me, I grew up on Long Island in a town called Cold Spring Harbor, very affluent on the outside. My dad's a prominent doctor and my mom's an early childhood trauma psychologist. So had it all on the outside. I went to private school and summer camp, um, but inside the house, it was just complete mayhem. And my dad was severe. Both my parents have been in and out of the rooms my whole life. Um, my dad was over 300 pounds, severely rageaholic and abusive. Um, and, you know, I always share the first memory I have of childhood. My dad came home from work and he was just raging through the house. I have an older sister who used to provoke him and he grabbed her and was throwing her up against the wall. Like I thought he was going to kill her. And I come running down the hallway and I jumped on his back and I'm trying to like pry him off my sister. And he grabbed me by the collar and just like threw me up against the wall and my head thudded back. And I remember looking across, we had this like long hallway and my mom is just standing in the doorway, just frozen. And I remember my, I'm just bawling and I'm just begging her to help us. And she went into her room and closed the door. And just that memory for me really embodies, you know, it was every man for himself fight or flight. I can't trust my parents. I have to figure it out, you know, on my own. And I ended up testifying against my dad when I was seven and court took away custody. Um, and it was just this whole crazy thing. And, you know, I never remember eating compulsively up until then. I don't remember ever using ice cream or cookie or whatever it was. I, don't, I never remember when I was living in the chaos I never remember eating in the chaos, but when court took away custody and um, you know, my mind started telling me every single day that my dad, my dad was gonna come and get us and like find me and my sister 
and drive us to Fort Lauderdale and like kill us in a, like my mind as a kid would create these craziest scenarios. Um, and there were times where my dad would come and try to get my mom. And, you know, I slept with a baseball bat under my bed. Like I was just always on and ready to run. And, um, you know, what the anxiety of my dad coming, you know, every single day I was just filled with dread and fear. I ate over it. And I remember just like, you know, eating ice cream just over the anxiety and it worked. Like, that's the thing with being a compulsive overeater. It's not like this never worked for me. It's just that my disease tricks me, you know, food worked for years, food worked for me. It would quell my anxiety. It would silence my mind. It would like help me with my fear that my dad was gonna come. But slowly what started to happen was I packed on 60 pounds. So I was 60 pounds overweight. And from around the age of nine through 16, I was 60 pounds overweight. Not a huge gap, but those were like key years. And I got bullied ruthlessly during that period, you know, every name a fat kid had, you know, the bullies picked up. It was just a horrible experience. It was a horrible childhood, just going to school every day. And, you know, they called me mute boy in school because nobody, you know, I couldn't lock eyes with anybody. I couldn't talk to people. Like nobody knew what was wrong with me. And I would just go home filled with shame and I just eat over it. And um, I just, I was so sad. And, um, you know, it says in the big book, what was the five minutes? Thank you. What was the thought that preceded the first drink? And for me as an overeater, like I, it's very clear to me that I'm a compulsive overeater, even before I started eating compulsively, because it started in my mind. And I remember even being five years old, looking at my, over my grandfather's balcony in Florida, thinking if I jump, all my problems are going to be over. And my next thought was, but nobody's going to show up at your funeral. And I was like a five-year-old thinking like that. And, you know, when I was fat, I used to go into the shower in the morning with imaginary scissors, just looking at all my body parts that I hated. And um, then I found bulimia. And I found a bulimia when I was a junior in high school. And, you know, the summer going into my junior year, I went from being 60 pounds overweight to 30 pounds underweight which is crazy if you do the math, it's a 90 pound swing in a summer. And I transferred high schools and nobody knew me as the fat kid at my new school. And I started dating the pretty girl and I started becoming a three sport athlete. And um, what my mind started telling me is this is good and I have to go to any lengths to make sure that I never ever put the weight on again. And um, from that time on until my senior year in college, I became a raging bulimic just you know, throwing up, diet pills, over-exercise. And by the time I hit my bottom, the bulimia was no longer working because I kept putting on five pounds in a weekend, 10 pounds a month. And like, I became the fat kid again, um, my biggest fear. So I came into OA 12 years ago and, um, you know, even getting into OA was a crazy story because I had made a decision that I was gonna kill myself. And I was going to have one final binge at my mom's house on Long Island. And I went to her house and I'm binging all the way through. And I'm binging my way through her pantry and the OA 12 and 12 fell out. And the miracle is not that it fell out. The miracle is that in my binge mode, I picked it up and went into my room 
and read the first page. And it says something like in the preamble, we of Overeaters Anonymous have found in this fellowship a way to recover from the disease of compulsive overeating. And that sentence just blew my mind because honestly, I thought I was the only person who ever, ever had this thing. And, um, you know, I went to OA a couple months later, I built up the courage and, you know, ended up moving to LA. And that's when my recovery really started. And, you know, they say, find someone who has what you want. It was hard. Even 12 years ago, I couldn't, you know, I had a list, like I was on an online dating platform of like, I wanted a male who was in the entertainment industry, who drove a nice car. I mean, I was like 20 years old. I didn't know what I wanted. Um, I just needed to find somebody who I could tell my deepest, darkest secrets to. The abuse, um, the fact that I was still a virgin, sexual abuse. Like I had so much trauma that I thought I was going to go to the grave with. I just needed to find somebody to unload it with. And um, this woman ended up coming up to me and she was everything not on my list. I don't even think she had a car or a job or anything. And she said, I'll temporarily sponsor you. And I said, okay. And she took the bus from Compton to Culver City every week for a year and took me through the 12 steps. And um, I was restored to sanity in that process. And I think I've been through the steps with many other sponsors, maybe six or seven times since then. And, um, you know, this program is the bedrock of my life. Like my life, you know, I'm restored to sanity with food today, but it was never about the food. You know, if I don't really shine a light on my trauma um, and the first part of step one, you know, the first part of step one, I'm powerless over food. When I pick up flour or sugar, I turn into a crack addict and I just can't stop. But my life is unmanageable. That's because I have trauma. My life is unmanageable because if I get on a red light on the high, you know, or if I'm stuck on the highway or my wife says something that I don't like, like I can just get sent back into my childhood wounds and react from that place. So I need the 12 steps whether I'm in the food or not, like I need the 12 steps as a way of life, as a design for living. And, you know, this program for me has given me the most beautiful, amazing, remarkable life. I remember a couple of years into recovery, I had a new Five sponsor. Minutes. Thank you. I had a new sponsor and he used to say, David, you're angry all the time. Why don't you start to shine a light on your relationship with your father? And I was sorry for cursing. But I was like, fuck that. Like, I'm never going to talk to my dad again. He's an abuser. And, you know, what happened for me when I got to the eighth step that time around was why don't I just pray for the willingness to pray for my dad and just start to soften? Because it's not about my dad. It's about the anger that I was having. And then I kept for about a year, I prayed for the willingness to pray for my dad. And then I found myself praying for my dad. And then I found myself in New York making amends to my dad. Because when I got up to the fourth step, I saw in every relationship that I had, when people hurt me, I just cut them out forever. I never want to deal with it. And I had to go to the source of that cutting with my dad and like start to mend that. And you know, my dad has had a lot of healing, but what happened a couple of years ago, um, I flew out to New York and spent a weekend with my dad. And he said, do you want to go to one of those OA meetings that you go to? And I said, okay. And we went to a meeting in Westchester, New York. And at the end of the meeting, he raised his hand and he said, my name's Lou. 
and I'm a compulsive overeater and I've been in denial my whole life. And it's, I mean, it's crazy. People were hugging him after. And, um, you know, my dad and I have a relationship today and he gave the toast at my wedding. And, um, you know, I learned in this program that it's hopefully a parent's, a parent's job to teach a child how to live, but it's a child's job to teach a parent how to die. And um, I'm just getting like teary-eyed. The fact that I have grace in my relationship with my dad today and forgiveness and I can show up without getting triggered is the most like amazing gift. And, um, you know, how I met my wife, I was in a long-term relationship and I kept trying to force my ex-girlfriend to be the one. I was just trying to make her see how good I was. And I came home one night and she said, it's over. I can't do this. And um, I, I stayed at a fellow's house that night and I got on my knees and I said, God, if you want me to be with somebody, you have to make it so abundantly clear, but there's no choice but for me to pursue her. And the next day I called my sponsor and I told him what happened. He said, David, I love you. Just come to my house, just grieve with my family. And I walked into my sponsor's house. And as I was walking in out of his back house, stepped his cousin who had moved from Australia two days before. And um, my sponsor, like it took a while and their deep therapy and outside help to heal my last relationship. But to make a long story short, um, I've now been married to that person for the last two years. And it is a relationship that is beyond my wildest dreams. And, you know, th that is God doing for me what I couldn't do for myself. And I help a lot of people in this program and I sponsor a lot of people and it keeps me right-sized. And the beauty and like the miracle of sponsorship is there's always somebody who's going through what I'm going through just at a different level. And when I had gotten broken up with, I had another sponsee who was broken up with like the same day and he went out and I got to see what could have happened for me. I could have just went the other way. I could have went back into my disease, but I stay hopefully every day with my higher power to the best of my ability. And I'm shown the miracles eventually. I just can't leave before they reveal themselves. And um, I have a really good life today. Um, I'm restored to sanity with food, but that's the least like interesting aspect of my recovery. I don't pick up my shirt. I don't get on the scale. I don't take diet pills. I eat three meals a day. You know, I have a stop button. I have a pause switch internally. And I have an intuition today. I have a voice inside of me that leads me to where I need to go in my career, in my relationships, in my marriage, you know, in all areas of my life. And if I'm eating, I can't hear the voice. I just can't hear it. And um, that voice for me is the most important relationship that I have. It's the voice of God. And it tells me where I need to go. So um, that's why I'm here tonight. Thank you for letting me share. And I'm excited to hear from all of you. So thank you.